Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 77. Last week, I covered the second of three festivals mandated by God in Exodus 23. In that case, the Festival of the Harvest. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Later, in that same chapter in Exodus, God tells the Israelites they are also to observe the Festival of Ingathering, the topic of this week's episode. And with that, let's get started. The third and last festival found in Exodus 23 is the Festival of Ingathering. Like the other two I've covered, it has other names, sometimes called the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Harvest Festival, and even more commonly, as Sukkot. It's traditionally celebrated on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Tishri, which places it between late September and late October. The actual command from God reads, You shall observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. End quote. Also, like the other two festivals, it was traditionally associated with a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem, one of the three times the males were to appear. As seen in Exodus, it marks the end of the harvest season, and the book of Leviticus, in chapter 23, provides more detail. Quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, Now, the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall keep the festival of the Lord, lasting seven days, a complete rest on the first day, and a complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day you shall take the fruit of majestic trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. Pausing for a second. Take note, these are the four species of plants that I will walk through later. Unpausing. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a festival to the Lord seven days in the year. You shall keep it in the seventh month as a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall live in booths for seven days. All that are citizens in Israel shall live in booths. End quote. Some see this as a command to acknowledge the dependence of the people of Israel on the will of God. And, like the plants, I'll get to the booths later too. The reference to the festival of booths can be found in Zechariah chapter 14, where it reads, Then all who survive of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the family of Egypt do not go up and present themselves, then on them shall come the plague that the Lord inflicts on the nations that do not go up to keep the festival of booths. Such shall be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up and keep the festival of booths." End quote. 
In the footnotes, in the New Revised Standard Version, the word booth is alternatively translated as tabernacle. The NIV in King James only translates it as tabernacles, with no notation of the word booths. A similar command can be found in Nehemiah chapter 8 that reads, On the second day the heads of ancestral houses of all the people, with the priest and the Levites, came together to the scribe Ezra in order to study the words of the law, and they found it written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel should live in booths during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their towns and in Jerusalem as follows, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on the roofs of their houses, and in the courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. For from the days of Jeshua, son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They keep the festival seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly, according to the ordinance. End quote. From these three passages come the traditions that have permeated for thousands of years. About the name Sakat, it's related to the Hebrew word for tabernacle. So, like the three translations I use for the podcast, it can be interpreted as booth. In this sense, it's a reference to a small walled hut or tent, typically a temporary structure made from plant material such as palm leaves, similar to where ancient Israelite farmers would typically live during the harvest season. It's also thought to be a structure resembling those used by the ancient Israelites as they wandered for 40 years through the desert, which is a bit more of theory than practice. Modernly, it's called Sukkah. Its walls can be constructed of any material, ranging from the more traditional wood, palm leaves, and canvas, to a modern take on the structure using aluminum siding. The hut can be as simple as four walls to more elaborate designs that include a porch. The overriding and more traditional requirement is that the roof be plant material, really even more specifically from plant material that grew while not touching the ground. So leaves, palm branches, or sakka mats. Think of a sakka mat as a flat mat of reeds woven together then rolled up similar to a scroll. In the West, you will occasionally see these used alternatively as window shades. As for the interior, tradition holds that it's decorated with motifs from the four harvest plants, the fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. In addition to this, some go as far as to install art. Overall, don't think of this as a one-off effort. 
After the celebration, the whole thing is disassembled and either repurposed or stored until the next year. Modernly, some adherents choose to build such structures for the festival and eat and sleep in them during the celebration week. More specifically, men are required to sleep in the hut, but this requirement is not enforced during droughts. But it doesn't end there. If a Brit Milah, which is a circumcision ceremony, or a Bar Mitzvah is celebrated during the week, the festival meal associated with either ceremony is served in the sukkah. And the father of a newborn boy receives guests to his Friday night Shalom Zakar in the sukkah. It was from this that the connection with the harvest festival grew. But not only that, the tents helped to form the connection with the Exodus wanderings. And that's enough about the tents. Back to the festival. Overall, in Israel, the holiday lasts seven days. Traditionally, those outside of Israel celebrate for eight days, just like the other two festivals. During this week or so, it begins and ends with a day where work is forbidden. So, essentially a Sabbath, but not always falling on a Saturday. The first day is celebrated as a full festival with special prayer services and holiday meals. The seventh and last day is called Hosanna Rabbah, literally translating to the great Hosanna. It refers to the tradition that worshipers in the synagogue walk around the perimeter of the sanctuary during morning services. More on that in a minute. As you've likely figured out, certainly by now, in the third of three mandated festivals, what began as a somewhat simple command has been layered on with thousands of years of tradition. And in keeping with the trend, Sukkah is no different. One of these traditions, besides the myriad I've already covered, is extending an invitation to seven lauded guests, essentially one for each day of the week. Now, traditionally, all seven visit the Sukkah every day of the festival, so seven guests over seven days, all showing up on all seven days. But on each day, a different one enters first. Essentially, the exalted guest of the exalted lot. And of course, the reason for exactly seven has a tradition too. Each one represents one of the seven shepherds linked to ancient Israel. Which seven? Well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Joseph, and David. Names and men that need no further explanation. And the rotating first one to enter each day is the focus of that day's lesson. But all lessons maintain an emphasis on the theme of spiritual focus. For those not residing in Israel, the first day and the last two days are celebrated as full festivals. All of the days in between are known as Kol Hamoed, meaning festival weekdays. According to the Halakha, some types of work are forbidden during these workdays. The Halakha is the accumulated body of Jewish religion laws derived from both the written and oral Torah. Activities that are needed for the holiday like purchasing, gathering, and preparing food, cleaning the house in honor of the holiday, and traveling to visit another family's sukkah or other family affairs are all allowed by Jewish law. 
prohibited activities tend to fall into the category of work or chores that would restrict relaxation and enjoyment associated with the holiday. With that in mind, strict adherents tend to treat the week as a period of vacation, or in a modern sense, staycation, staying in the harvest tent. They do tend to eat nicer, better prepared meals, entertain guests, and visit friends and family. In keeping with the theme, most synagogues and Jewish centers offer events and meals in their communal sukkah during this time to promote the community along with overall goodwill. Therefore, even in modern Israel, many businesses are closed during this time. At home, things such as cutting hair and nails are not permitted. Laundry cannot be done. Gardening and fishing are likewise not allowed. Camera film cannot be developed, but digital prints are allowed. There are many more rules and exceptions to all of these. The most common exception is for the production of food that will be consumed during the holiday week. And about these weekdays, Overall, their important lies somewhere between the bookend Sabbath days and regular days. And think of the regulations under a similar hybrid type of arrangement. Also during the week, several religious traditions are followed. The Torah is read every day, and the Masaf is held. The Masaf is an additional religious service held on the Sabbath a handful of times throughout the year. The Halal is also recited. The Halal is a Jewish prayer, which itself is a verbatim recitation from Psalms chapters 113 through 118. It's viewed as an act of praise and thanksgiving and is read by observant Jews on high Jewish holidays. During these weekdays of Sukkah, the festival includes jamborees of music and dance, known as the celebration of the place of water drawing. This part of the festival memorializes the drawing of the water for the water found on the altar. This is also an offering unique to Sukkah, and when water was carried up the Jerusalem pilgrimage road from the Pool of Siloam to the temple in Jerusalem. Then, there are specific rituals stemming from the four harvest plants. During the temple period, essentially the years of the Old Testament, a ceremony involving the four species was held in the temple. But before getting to that, a bit about these plants. First, there's no exact biblical reference to the four plants, except for what I've already covered. Instead, the traditions come from thousands of years that have transpired since the festival was first mandated, which makes explanation a far less exact endeavor. The overriding thought is that the plants symbolize the fertility of the land as evidenced in the harvest that immediately precedes the festival, and the hope that the next year's crop will be of equal or better abundance. Layered on top is that in this region of ancient Israel, the rainy season follows the harvest, so the necessary precipitation is being anxiously awaited. Midrash commentators add to these thoughts other moral and theological explanations for the plants, many of which are based on the specific nature of each of the plants. The etrog, which is a yellow citrus fruit native to the region, 
is said to be included due to both its taste and aroma. The date palm is due to its taste, the myrtle its aroma, and the willow because of its lacking of both taste and aroma. So, a 2x2 two two matrix of taste and aroma with each quadrant represented. But what's important about taste and aroma? These two qualities have been associated with the Torah and good works. Think of it as the law and the works that should follow. So, the four plants represent either or both the Torah and the works, or in the case of the willow, neither. The teachings were that when one came up short, it was made up by the other. The willow leaning on the etrog. A different explanation relies on the physical shape of each of the plants. The leaf of the date palm is said to resemble the human spine, the etrog the heart. The myrtle leaves represent the eye, and the willow leaves the mouth. The theory then posits that these plants represent the need to submit the participant's body to the service of God. A final interpretation is that they represent the four different agricultural areas of Israel. The date palm is for the lowland, the willow is for the Jordan River, the myrtle represents the mountains, and the etrog is for the irrigated land. And this tradition was held in such high regard that during the Second Temple period, so between 516 BC and 70 AD, even the warriors, while preparing for immediate battle, were given the proper ration of each of the four. So that's the four plants used during the festival. But how are they used? Traditional Judaic rules prevent the palm leaves and etrog from being carried into a synagogue during the week-long festival. Instead, outside of the temple, they were waved in a set manner, towards the east, the south, the west, the north, then upward and downward. All of this in acknowledgement of the divine rule over nature. At the same time as the waving, parts of Psalms chapter 8 were recited. The specific part reads, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. End quote. After the Masaf service, so the second religious service of the day, the four harvest plants were taken in a procession around the altar while Psalms chapter 118 verse 25 was recited. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. For the first six days of the festival, only one lap around the altar was made. But on the seventh day, seven laps were completed. In ancient Israel, this was only done at the Jerusalem temple. But after its destruction, the rites were instituted at the synagogue level. Backing up a bit, during the second temple period, Hanukkah was celebrated by the Maccabees as a second festival of tabernacles. That's how important this festival was to them. Also, during the reign of King Alexander Yehanai, who was the king of Judea between 103 and 76 BC, a mob of worshippers assaulted the king with their etrog during the festival. This was in reaction to his perceived disregard for the Feast of Water Drawing, 
the weekday ceremony I covered a few minutes ago. As for the presentation of the plants, as best as I can describe it, the palm branch is in the center. To the left are two willow branches, and to the right are three myrtle branches, with the myrtle extending further out than the willow. The group of three branches, palm, willow, and myrtle, are held in the participant's right hand. In their left hand is the citrus etrog fruit. All four plants are held close enough together to touch. Some participants have adopted the tradition of picking up the etrog first and putting it down last. But that's not all. Every day during the festival, adherents walk the perimeter of the synagogue carrying these samples of each of the four harvest crops. While they do this, they recite special prayers known as the Hosanat. The name Hosanat is derived from the refrain of Hosanna, which translates to, Please Save. This processional is based upon what was done in the ancient temple. Back then, on each day of Sukkah, the priest would lead the people in a circle around the altar reciting Hosanna, and on the seventh day, they would proceed with the processional and recitation seven times. This procession typically takes place after the morning's Torah reading or at the end of the Musa. This part of the tradition is meant to be a reminder of the ancient ceremony at the temple in Jerusalem, a rite known as the Willow Ceremony, where willow branches were stacked beside the altar, all while participants filed around the altar reciting prayers. As for this seventh day, it's known as the Great Supplication. Also on this day, a bundle of five willow branches is beaten on the ground. If by chance a Sabbath happens to fall on a non-high day, what up until this point I've been calling a weekday, the book of Ecclesiastes is read during the morning synagogue, at least at services in Israel. This is done as an emphasis on the fleetingness of life, an echo to the theme of the festival with the book's emphasis on death running parallel with the holiday occurring in the autumn. And the overall theme is that the only worthwhile lifelong pursuit is an adherence to God's law and the Torah given by Him. If the Sabbath is on a normal Sabbath calendar day, so a Saturday, then the book is read on that day. During the ancient temple period, all Jewish men, women, and children who came to Jerusalem as part of a pilgrimage for the festival would gather in the temple courtyard on the first day of Sukkot to hear the Jewish king read various selections from the Torah. This ceremony is mandated in Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 10. It was held every seven years in the year following the sabbatical year at least up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. After that time, the ceremony was discontinued, at least for about 1900 years. It was revived, albeit on a smaller scale, in 1952. A holiday known as the Eighth Day of Assembly immediately follows Sukkah, and despite its calendar proximity, it's really considered a separate holiday. For those Jews outside of Israel, an additional holiday known as the Joy of the Torah is celebrated. Inside Israel, these two are combined. Whichever one is followed, on one of these days, people resume eating their meals in their houses, 
abandoning their tents until the next harvest festival. Circling back to the history, in 1 Kings chapter 12, we see where King Jeroboam, the first king of the rebellious northern kingdom, instituted a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month to compete with the Sukkoth held in Jerusalem at the same time. Apparently, he was worried that his subjects would continue the traditional pilgrimage to Judea, which could lead to reunification pressures, and if that happened, he would no longer have a kingdom. And the celebration of Sukkah is not limited to Judaism. There are Christian denominations from Eastern Europe that also celebrate the holiday. They base their celebration on the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, where Jesus taught at the temple during the festival. This Christian tradition is thought to date to the 17th century and is associated with the Feast of the Transfiguration. And even for these Christians, the annual calendar date relies on the Hebrew calendar. Some academics point out that the festival is similar to the ancient Ugaritic New Year festival. The Ugarites, for this celebration, would build two rows of huts with branches on the temple roof as a temporary dwelling house for their deities. And finally, in case you haven't noticed, there are similarities between what we view as our Thanksgiving celebration and Sukkah. But this is true with most harvest festivals found around the globe. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, and I'll continue pushing through the history of Exodus. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.